You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, hello. Welcome back to the Riverview Church Conversations podcast. Hello, Reese. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Yeah. It's going well. It's a nice day today. Things are moving along. A beautiful afternoon. It's a beautiful afternoon. Yes. Always good to be back together recording here in the room that we are in. One of the rooms. That's we, right. do, we, we tend to take whatever room's available. That's, that's this is right. probably the preferred room, isn't it? Mm. View mm. of the park. Mm. Someone's leftover meeting notes on the whiteboard behind <laughs> you there. Try and decipher them a little later. You can always get a good bit of intel on what's uh, what's happening in, in the organisation by what's left that's on true. the whiteboard. That's true. Mm. What have you been up to, Reese? Oh, we're just, we're working on a few films around here. Mm. My That's in my day job. In my personal life, oh man, what have, what have I not been up to? Ferrying the kids around, <laughs> pretty much. Keeping yourself busy. Well, yes, yes. Yeah. I'd like to be less busy, but you know what? This this is the life I, I have. These are the cards I've been dealt. Is that is it just a thing that, you know, I feel like you go, oh, how, how's life been? It's usually busy. Is that Does that just increase as you oh, go along well, in life? Bonnie like, and I always like, because sometimes you feel like your ship's in the night with your life partner of choice and it's kind of like, so how are you going? And I just rattle off the pat kind of answer that you'd say if you're in the pub with someone. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, good, busy, you know, just work and the kids and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, sometimes we talk in kind of, you know, random generalizations. But yeah, That's for, like, for me with Renee, obviously we uh, – work at the same place here at Review Church, which actually makes things also quite interesting, but on the other side, because then you get home and you don't really want to talk about (laughs) work-based stuff. So it's like, so you almost just stand there and nod to each other. If you worked in different areas. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be a little bit different. But the fact that you work in the same area maybe is just like, I've had enough of you. I've been with you for eight hours. No, it's it's an interesting dynamic. I think we've, we've landed that, I'm the boss at work. She's the boss at home. So you are the head simple. of the household, and she is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> That's exactly or some right. Patriarchal, terrible answer like that. That's exactly <laughs> right. Rich. Now I've got a, a fun question for you today. This is a really, really random one, but Hit it threads me. in with our conversation for today. If you could, just in this moment, you could just change any scientific fact. If you could rewrite a a truth in the world, what would you rewrite? Like. Oh. You know, something that maybe someone discovered a long time ago, if you could just change it. Well, is there anything that comes to mind? I would potentially make the nights longer. I'd make daytime the same amount of time and nighttime a little bit longer so I could sleep in a bit more, you know? Yeah. Because, like, I, I, I deeply love the hours that I'm not awake. So, yeah, that's what I would do. There you go. That's... Or was, like, or, or maybe something fun, like kind of make gravity just a little bit that, less. That's, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking. Make it just a little, little bit you, more jumpy, floaty. Yeah. I feel like it'd be fun just to like change something to do with like the dating or something of the world, just to upset people, just to throw them out. Oh, like the, um, like how we, uh, like how we measure time and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah you just ruin be, everyone's yeah, instruments. would be pretty buzzy, eh? Look, now we, we can't do that. No, we can't. That's not. I was going to say get rid of wind, but then there'd be no trees because they'd fall over. Because they need the wind to build resilience. Oh, yes, come on! Wow, wow! Now we are. Um, man, I'm excited for the conversation today. So am I. This is uh, 
it's a bit of a fanboy kind of vibe. Yeah, I feel like I've spent um, uh, a great many hours of my life listening to our guest. Mm, mm. If you're uh, wondering who our guest uh, for today is, his name is Jared Bias, and uh, he is the co-host of the Bible for Normal People, which is a wonderful podcast if oh, you haven't so listened good. to it. You know, we're just going to be out here cross-promoting podcasts. If and there's a good not? one out it, there. It's certainly a good one to promote. It is, yeah. So he and uh, Pete Enns usually chat about random passages of Scripture, have good conversations. Worth checking out. Maybe mm. not right now. You're listening to us yeah, right stay now. Stay listening to us. Just stay. do it afterwards. <laughs> afterwards. You can put it in your play next pile. Anyway, Jared Bias is a co-host um, of that podcast. He's an author. He's um, I. One thing that I really love about him is he just seems like he's a really good um asker of questions. I don't know if that, that's the yeah, right yeah, phrase, but yeah. he just has a, a, an amazing mind to actually think and consider, you know, could we do this better? Are we just, you know, moving into the status quo? And, and so our conversation today really actually came about by um, me engaging with his book. And I kind of read this book that he wrote um, titled Love Matters More. And I was just blown away. I, it was one of those ones where you're reading it and you're thinking, man, like, I wish every Christian could read this uh, because what he wants to really unpack is trying to contrast and and I guess relink the nature of truth and love. Um, he in particular uses the passage of scripture in Ephesians 4.15, which we'll talk about in our conversation, uh, talking about speaking the truth in love. and That old chestnut. Yeah, and I think for us, both of us have grown up in environments where that was really used for a certain agenda um, to you know, correct someone rather than actually as an opportunity to allow love to come through. And so he's written a book really, which is about helping us understand the dynamic between truth and love and how the Christian life is actually not all about collecting truths. It's not about you know um, walking along and collecting our basket of right things, but rather it's more about going along and, and loving better and figuring out how to both love God and to love others. And sometimes it really does seem like the, the Christian life is kind of a bit like how you've described, or at least kind of holding to one um, unshakable truth about the world and then potentially kind of using that to kind of prod at all the things in life or at least kind of judge everything that you um, encounter in life or all your situations or your relationships by that measuring stick. And I think it... If you once you have lived more than a day, you'd probably realize that it's not as simple as that. And so the chat with Jared is it's amazing chat for kind of um, breaking that down a little bit and kind of looking at kind of the complexity and potentially a more helpful way of approaching life rather than one that's um, can be problematic, but one that's more open and curious about the other other people in our yeah. lives. It helps also just almost reassess the goal of our our life as well. And I think so often it, it becomes very easy for me to assume that the the best Jesus followers are the ones who have all the right answers as opposed to the ones who actually live out the answers the best and, and love the best. And so um, really do hope and pray that the conversation that we have today is actually one that would encourage you, inspire you, and, and maybe even um, start this conversation that actually continues for you. So without further ado, here's Jared Bias. Well, Jared Bias, thank you so much for joining with us on the Riverview Church Conversations podcast. We're so glad you could be with us. Uh, what time is it over there for you? It is eight o'clock in the evening here. Oh, 8 a.m. for us. Perfect. 12 hour split. 
Love it. Hey, thank you. Thank you for being with us. And um, as we've briefly chatted with you prior to our record, we've been really keen to have you join with us on the podcast. About a year ago, or just under a year ago, you wrote a book called Love Matters More. And man, like I, I read that book and I was wrestling with with that for days, like a really good wrestle. And um, as I was reading through it, I was kind of bugging Reese about it as I go, I'm going, man, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. Just selling a couple of extra copies for you. Um, but so much of what was in there really stood out to me. And it's been something that I was really keen to have a conversation with you about and just hear a little bit more from you, not only about some of the contents of the book, but the heart behind the book. So could you maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about like what drove you to write that book? Why did you write a book about love mattering more? Um, what was going on for you to write that? Well, it, there was two two phases to this because on the one hand, I started out by writing a book about truth. So I kind of started the, the genesis of this book, the seeds of it, when I was a pastor almost 10 years ago probably. And really just knowing people didn't understand truth and were kind of using it in ways that I thought were unhelpful. But the more I, I went down that path, the more I realized how uh, guilty I was of using truth as a weapon. Mm. And then these other voices in my head came out loud and clear. A lot of women, and frankly, a lot of the older women in the back of the pews when I was a pastor who I would try to convert to being smart about theology, and they would just sort of wave, wave me off and say, you know, that's all over my head. And yet, at, looking back, they were the most loving, Jesus-like people in the congregation. And so something was askew for me when I, my rubric or my standard for what a quote good Christian was, was based on beliefs and on knowing the right things about God and not about living a life of love. Mm. Mm. And can you just tell us a little bit about your almost faith tradition, um, where you kind of grew up, your heritage of, of faith? Yeah. So I grew up in a a pretty conservative denomination here in the States called the Southern Baptist Convention uh, of a Southern Baptist. And then my grandmother though is, is charismatic. So a lot of speaking in tongues and things like that. Um, still she to this day is, is an ordained minister in that tradition. And then I went to a Presbyterian church by myself by the time I got to high school. Um, Cause it was a little more intellectual and that was what I was drawn toward. And so that's sort of my, my background. I went to Liberty university um, for my undergrad, and then went to a Presbyterian seminary. Mm. And so, so so much of this uh, book and, and what you've kind of written about hinges on, I guess, the passage in uh, Ephesians 4, talking about speaking the truth in love. That old chestnut. I love that one. I feel like uh, my, my experience as a young nugget running around the halls of a Baptist church was so much of that was having the truth spoken to me in love, otherwise just getting told off. Yeah, and I think so much of when we when we hear that or we use that passage, it's it's a choice that we need to make between two options. Um, and I know you've kind of articulated a little bit about that. Can you tell just talk us through some of that passage and why that um, triggered so much of writing this even? Yeah, I mean the whole the whole book really centers around this phrase, speaking the truth in love, because of how many people in my life had been telling me over the years how hurtful that phrase was in particular where it was, it, people felt ju- judged and shamed and belittled and demeaned all in the name of love and all under the guise of that particular verse, telling the truth in love. So I wanted to unpack that. I, I was almost certain that what it didn't mean was that you can just go be a jerk, uh, but it, and it doesn't really matter as long as you're telling the truth. And again, it, it sort of, it captured 
I think, how we misuse the Bible when we have a different goal in mind. So if our goal is to get all the facts right, then the only thing that matters is truth. To the point that in, in my tradition, we didn't even have a battle between truth and love because they were the same thing. All you had to do to love someone was to tell them the truth. Yeah. That's, all, that's the only requirement of love was to give them the, whole, the cold, hard facts. And it didn't really matter how you did that. You know, it would, the matters was, can we keep you out of hell for eternity? So, so sorry, I'm being a jerk, but I'm over here trying to save your soul. And it just didn't, it didn't sit right in terms of the context I see in, in the rest of the New Testament. It's yeah. kind of like, I love you so much that I'm going to give you the cold, hard facts and hopefully like slap you out of your whatever it is that you're in, which doesn't seem to me to be particularly loving. Yeah, and I think that notion that you mentioned of almost mixing up the the goal a little bit, I feel like it becomes so easy to do. Again, and I've heard you say it before, like we get so often confused that, that we think the best Christians are the ones who who know it all and and have all the facts and the info. But sometimes we seldom care about how well they actually love people or how well they love us or, or love the people around them. Um, and, and it kind of, I think when we talk about the goal of, of the Christian life, that can become confusing in, in some senses because of the environment that we sit in and all of those kind of things. I know you've, you use the analogy of a map in the book and um, sometimes we get so caught up with the the map itself that we forget the in in some ways the purpose of uh, the map and and that's actually been a really helpful kind of tool just to be thinking through sometimes when I I'm I'm moving towards something what's actually the the goal of some of this stuff is it is it more truth or is it more love Jesus seemed to think it was probably more love uh, but sometimes I get it. Skewed but then, up. like people would would also say that uh, things, you know, like Jesus came to fulfill the law, so he's going about it in a certain way. But it doesn't discount any of the other things. I can still be a jerk to you, you know, or I can still kind of spout something that might be quite distasteful. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think that's the the th- the heart of it is how do we get underneath some of our justifications and rationale for behaving badly toward each other, and not using truth as a get out of jail free card for uh, us doing unloving things toward our neighbor and calling it love or calling it truth telling. Um, and it's just so easy, I think, to get into that headspace where we can deceive ourselves into thinking that what we do, what we're doing really is loving. And so I think it's really important that we are able to talk to those people around us and really listen to whether or not the things we're doing are loving, because part of what it means to love is to have the other person feel loved. And so there's, I I talk about these two things, I think in the book, intention and impact. And love is a relational term, which means it requires both of those things. It requires the intention, but it also requires the impact. So if I have the right intention, but it has a negative or hurtful impact, that's not love. And if I have maybe the wrong intention uh, and, uh, you know, maybe the impact isn't as, as severe as I thought it was, that's also not love. And so it's this integration of intention and impact where I feel like, when we use that phrase, telling the truth in love, what we're saying is your feelings on this don't count. As long as my intention was good, it's loving and you just need to get over it and accept it as such. I feel like when we talk about um, truth as well, it can very quickly become uh, 
like a little heady and we kind of get lost in the haze sometimes. Yeah, you, you can you, sometimes get like, uh, it, it can become, <laughs> you do mental gymnastics with someone who's potentially smarter than you or just better at arguing than you and you can almost kind of give up when it comes to mm. the, the question of truth. Because it seems to me, we, we it's not so much that we have a love problem, it's more that we have a truth problem in that we all approach a situation or the Bible or the Christian life and we can see a few facets of the truth diamond, but we can't see the whole thing. We maybe don't even know kind of that it's a diamond, you know. I suppose like the the elephant analogy that that you've outlined in the book, which I found kind of quite profound. I, I wonder if you could um, potentially just unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a it's an old story that I think a lot of people probably would know. You know, of these uh, in the the variation I grew up with was three Indians who are blind men in India who are in the forest and come across this elephant. And each of them feels a different part. And they say, oh, one, one of them says it's a rope um, it, because he's feeling the tail. One of them says, no, it's a wall. One of them says, no, it's a tree because he's feeling the leg. And so each of them has a piece of the puzzle, but they don't have the whole puzzle. And one of the things that I always find interesting about that is it also, it invokes humility on the one sense where we have to say, you know what, we, we only ever see things from our own vantage point. But it also evokes a sort of arrogance because it assumes that we as the hearers of the story understand that it's an elephant. So we're sort of above the blind men and saying, oh, the silly blind men, it's actually an elephant. But what if we are the blind men in the story and we don't know it's an elephant? And so I make the point that when we talk about absolute truth, that's like saying only God knows it's an elephant. And so we all have to have this proper humility where we have to understand in any and every situation we go in, we, we may only be seeing things partially or like uh, Paul says, you know, through the glass dimly or darkly. Mm. Can, you, can you break down the, the truth? I know throughout the book, you kind of outlined three, I guess, facets to truth. Could you kind of just walk us through those a little bit just to help give a bit wider understanding? Yeah, it's, it's really just thinking about, what, and the reason I, I wanted to break it down is because I think sometimes we are like ships passing in the night when mm. we use the word truth. It's like, I mean it in one sense and you mean it in another sense yeah, and we're just yeah, arguing yeah. over different senses. It's like, okay, well, let's just level the playing field. And I talk about three different senses of truth. And one's facts. Uh, and so I kind of crassly define that as what would be true if everyone were dead, right? So you take all human beings out of the planet and there's still like laws of nature. There's still facts about how the world operates. Um, and then there's meaning, which is a thoroughly relational and human thing. And so when I say, uh, you know, that resonates as true for me, that's usually a, a meaning kind of truth. So I often give the example of, well, let me give the third and then I'll walk through an example maybe of how they each apply. But then the third is wisdom, truth. So we have fact then we have meaning. Then we have wisdom, which is a lived out truth. It's an, it's an existential, it's an existence truth. So if you're true to yourself, that's sort of a wisdom kind of use of that trueness. So let's use, uh, let's see if this works. I'm just going to make up something. But let's use like the book of Jonah, for example. So when we're talking about the Jonah, we say, is Jonah true as a, as a book in the Bible? We can be meaning that in any one of those senses. Yeah, right. So if yeah, we're talking about yeah. facts, we can ask, did it historically happen that way? That would be a fact truth that we're talking about. Or we can say, is it true that sometimes our enemies are the hardest people to love? Mm-hmm. That's a profound truth that we get from the book of Jonah. Um, and then there's wisdom truth, which is, Am I right now following in the footsteps of the lessons I've learned in Jonah by loving my neighbor? 
Am I being true to myself and being true to the lessons of that story in my everyday walking around existing life? And my point in the book really is we've, we've overemphasized the importance of whether or not God could have a, him, a man historically be swallowed by a whale and we don't give enough attention to, am I in my everyday life embodying the lesson that Jonah has for us in terms of loving my enemies? Well, Jared, what would you say there? I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that for them, the meaning and the wisdom truth is is so strongly linked to the fact truth. So if it didn't happen, well, I can't draw meaning from that. Wait, like, what, what do you say to that? What's your pushback towards that? I would just give examples from almost every movie or novel <laughs> that I've ever watched or read, right? part of why those are so popular is because they are so true, not because they're so historically accurate. Uh, No one's going to throw Harry Potter in the trash when they figure out that it's not historical accurate, uh, you know, that there really isn't a Hogwarts out there. That's not why we read it. We read it because it's true in this more, in this deeper, more meaningful sense of we can relate to uh, these, uh, these, the meanings that we find in the book. Mm. It's funny that you mentioned Jonah. That's a that's a book that always is. Um, let's just say, in my family, when it comes up, people leave the room. <laughs> but 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 it's it's interesting because I would approach that conversation of oh no, it's 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 like this, or it's supposed to do this, and no 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 no, like what you're saying is um, there are other ways of approaching it, and then I easily fall into the trap of you're wrong, I'm mm. right, mm. my truth is the I I, I get to decide who's right in this conversation. Mm. And so ultimately, like any, any situation we find ourselves in, we, we approach with our own version of the truth. And who gets to decide? Who decides who's, who's right? You know? Right. And that's why, you know, I'd like to push us past that conversation. And instead of getting into a stalemate about who's right, asking that further question of, well, how does your reading of Jonah help you to love better? How does it how does it engage you or push you to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That mm. that that's the question I want to ask. So it doesn't really matter to me if 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 the engine for you toward becoming a more loving human is to see Jonah as a historically accurate picture. I might say that you're wrong, but I'm also not going to argue that because I'm more interested. It's more important to me mm. that it's the engine for love, not whether we're right or not right about what kind of book it is. Mm. Now, obviously in life, we are also just presented with, with moments in time where maybe, maybe you'd call it revelation, whatever it is, where our perception of the truth is instantly broadened. You know, we, we come across something, we, we hear something, God speaks in a new way or a profound way. Um, and I, I know in the book, you actually use the analogy of black swans, which is kind of fitting for us in WA, the black swan is on our state flag. Yeah. So it's like our emblem. And uh, you, you, know, you use the analogy saying that obviously for, for generations, people just assumed that swans were white and that was the facts and they were the, the things. And, and so you would just assume that. And then I guess the question is when you come across a black swan, what do you do with that? Do you make that? fit into and just go, no, it's an anomaly. Like we get rid of it completely. We just never write about it, never talk about it. Or do you go, let's put it on a state flag and let's acknowledge that, okay, this is, this is widening what we once thought as true. And I guess I want to just ask you a little bit about that. Like 
why is there such a resistance in us to embrace the new? Like, I know that's a really big question, but is it just we've gotten so comfortable with the, and we've built our lives and, you know, so much of our foundations, maybe on truth, facts, truth, that when something comes in and kind of shakes that up, we we actually sometimes don't even want to accept it. I think there's a few things going on there. One, I think we can't underestimate the power of fear in there where we're afraid. It's sort of the, we'd prefer to face the devil we know than the devil we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm in a place where I at least know there's nothing unexpected in my framework of belief that I have right now. But if you let this foreign object come in, how is that going to shake up and change the rest of my life? And that's scary. I think that's a scary thing. Um, but I think secondly, what you said, I think is true. I think we've, we've, sort of made an idol of facts and have put that as the identity that we hold to as Christians is that we've gotten the facts right. And so it sort of shakes us to the core when new facts come, because what does that mean for my identity as a Christian and who I am and, and what I believe and my community, you know, a lot of our friendships and relationships depend on us not changing our minds about the Bible or God or spirituality or things of faith. So I, I think it's a matter of dealing with the fears that come along with that, which is to say, how do we talk more about how we hold our beliefs and not as much about what those beliefs are? Hmm. It's interesting. You, If you go onto any structured Christian community website or if you spend more than a day in a church, you would find that they probably have a statement of faith or some kind of a thing like that, which is basically a statement of what we think is true. And sometimes that can be, short or sometimes that can be voluminous um, i i wonder if they need a they need a how we hold this statement of faith yeah it's like should, i wonder if maybe we should be like a statement of love or some kind of a thing that's potentially an antidote where you can be like well these are the things that, these are the ways that we like to conduct ourselves and these are the things that we value rather than the apostles creed and uh, the Holy Spirit and eternal conscious torment and those type of things, which let's be honest, no one's going to hop onto a Christian community website and be inspired by most of those well, things. And, and no one comes to know Jesus because they went on a website and saw the statement of faith. They probably come to know Jesus through the love of his people. And for whatever reason, we have lent on that side. I mean, we were just talking the other day about the whole um, imperial and metric systems uh, and I know that sounds mm. kind of unusual, but obviously for you in the US, you, you choose one method. Most of the world choose a different method. And I wonder if part of that is, is again, a, a, like we just want to, it's going to be too hard now if it's we too change traumatic, it. Yeah. It's too traumatic. It's what a process to go through of, of changing it. And we're not, we're not recommending anything today on the podcast, but you know, to actually go through that work is is really difficult. And I wonder if when it, when it comes to truth or it comes to facts, or sometimes it even comes to the meaning side of it, it's actually just too hard. So we kind of put up the wall and go, you know what? It's too, I'm too far gone. This is just what I... You can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, can you? Maybe. There's a Buddhist writer, and I probably don't know how to pronounce his name right because I don't ever say it out loud. I just read it. But that's not Han. I don't know if you know him. But he has this quote that he says, if we take something to be the truth, we may cling to it so much that when truth comes and knocks at our door, we won't want to let it in. And I mm. think that kind of captures for me that we can have our truths in our hand, the things we believe in our hand, and we can either hold to those tightly fisted or open-handed. Yeah. The beliefs are still in our hands. We still hold to them, 
But I think it makes all the difference in the world, whether we are open handed with those beliefs or we're tight fisted with them. Mm. So can we kind of, I guess, move into talking and, and I think it's all related to love, but you know, the title of the book is, is love matters more. So we've spent some time talking about the, the truth side. I don't even want to paint it as, you know, two sides, um, but we've spent some time talking about truth. So, so how does love fit into what we've just spoken about? Well, I can maybe taking the a biblical approach is as I was going through the the Bible, as I was kind of writing this book, one of the surprising things was I went through every instance that the word truth was used and came to realize that it is almost never used to mean getting the facts right or believing the right things. It's instead uh, very re- relational. Mm-hmm. So we when we see the word truth, we kind of come to it with our preconceived notions of what that is. But a lot of times that same Hebrew or Greek word that we translate as truth isn't actually translated as truth. It's most often translated as words like faithfulness or trustworthiness. Hmm. Um, So for me, uh, you know, it's honesty, authenticity, uh, commitment to the good. These are actually the concepts that are behind those Hebrew and Greek words that we translate as truth and, and so for me, we get to say Ephesians chapter four, and we have in 4.15, speaking the truth in love. And that, that kind of pits it apart. But if we actually went back just a few verses at the beginning of Ephesians chapter four, Paul uses the same phrase in love, but he actually says, we have to bear with one another in love. And so whatever we mean by speaking the truth in love, we can't divorce it from the beginning of that chapter, which is, about being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another, which for me sounds an awful lot like love. Mm -hmm. And so that's the connection for me to say, I don't think truth is pitched against love in the Bible. I actually think they're pretty much the same thing. Mm. And I guess part of it is that idea of, like you said, honesty, it's almost being truthful or being true to but that that does become being a good neighbor. Yeah. (laughs) It's really what it is. It's being a good neighbor. And that that can become, I guess, a bit of a, a tricky spiral, though. If if all of your facts are, <laughs> I don't want to go back down the road, but you know, if you have a but completely that's a, that's a really good point because again, what we're not saying is that facts don't matter. It's yeah. just that in facts have to take their proper place behind love. So if I'm trying to love, I want to get the facts right, right? So if if I'm want to love my kid well, and he gets uh you know, a stomach ache or he's starting to have pains, I want to go to a doctor and I want to get the facts right because that's how we can love him well. Mm. But the truth seeking and the truth finding in that context is all in service toward love, not the other way around. Yeah. And I think that's what happens when we get that switched around. That's that uh, idea that we're, we're mistaking the map for the treasure. I, I wonder if um, it's easy to... It's easier to navigate it maybe when you don't have skin in the game. But I think you, you, you talk about, say, like if your children has a, if your child has a stomach ache. But once you have skin in the game, it potentially become becomes a whole lot more real. For example, if you have a child who comes out as LGBT or something like that, and your your all your hopes and dreams and your faith life are potentially um, not geared towards that, then you're faced with a very real. Um, so what? what do I do? Like I've spent my entire life 
um, thinking this or structured in this way. And now um, my child has decided that they want different things than what I wanted for it's them. Like your black swan walks yeah, in. What do, I, what do I do now? You know, it can, uh, I, I imagine that could be like super traumatic for people, a situation like that, whether it be like a, an issue of sexuality or career or, or family, cultural traditions, all that type of stuff. It, that's a whole lot more real than just arguing over kind of whether or not there's a fiery hell or whether it's just annihilation or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I think that's why I, I made sure we had to have a, I had to have a chapter in the book on freedom mm. because I think, it's really easy to love someone when they make choices that you approve of. It gets a lot harder to love someone when they're making choices you don't approve of. And part of that is letting go of control. And, you know, we often use this analogy of children. So I say, we don't get to control people. And and sometimes people push back and say, well, if your kid was running in the street, wouldn't it be the loving thing to control them? I said, yeah, when he's three, it's less, it's less okay when he's nine, even less so when he's 14. And it's not at all okay when he's 19. I mean, to save someone, sure. But to continually disregard someone's autonomous wishes as a, a human being adult to say that, no, I, I, I reject what you've decided to live for your life and I can't be in relationship with you on that basis. It, for me, is, is confusing love and control. And I think uh, those don't exist together. Yeah, can we, uh, yeah, I I think trying to get practical on this, it becomes, you know, obviously we're we're using a a bunch of different examples and things like that. But in actually figuring out, okay, how do I actually go about loving well the person that I maybe disagree with or maybe we have different perspectives on things or like, um, yeah, can you give us a checklist? <laughs> the three things to do to love people well. Be nice, don't be a jerk, and I don't know. It's 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 fraught, man. Every situation is different, isn't it? You can, though. Here's where I think people get into trouble, is we don't take stock and inventory of our own insecurities and our own projections and fears. I, it's so much harder to be in a relationship with someone I disagree with if I have all these things going on inside of me that are unresolved, it's a lot easier when, you know, when I'm not, I don't have these insecurities or I'm not have these fears um, of what if I'm wrong. Um, And so I think when we get our own fears mixed up in a relationship with someone, I do that as a parent a lot. I don't love well control starts to take over because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my kids aren't going to turn out the right way. They're not going to turn out to be good human beings. And so when they make decisions that I don't like, I'm afraid for them. And my fear comes out as control. And then that creates distance between me and my kid. And it's just this cycle. Rather than taking stock and saying, listen, I'm not going to project and tell you you're wrong. I'm going to just name my own fear and say, I'm afraid for you. And I want to be in relationship with you. But we're gonna if if I can ask for your patience as I work through my own fears, no. um, and I think that's really key and really important to take stock of our own feelings because I think a lot of times we project. I think I tell this in the book of you know being around a a family once who uh, you know all about loving your neighbor. It was all good, and then somebody in a meeting once asked uh, one of the family members if your son was gay, you know what would you do? And his immediate response was something like, I, I don't know if I can cuss on this. 
podcast, but basically he was like, I basically said, I'd, I'd beat his ass is what he said. Mm-hmm. In, the, in a split second, I realized he has a lot of things going on in his life that he's not owning. He's not, he's not naming. I mean, he was visibly angry at this and you don't, we, you know, we can, we can tell someone they're wrong without being viscerally angry. That's, that's beyond just thinking someone's wrong. Um, so that for me, I think there's a, that's what I want to say. And I'm, I'm meandering here, but it's giving that separation, giving that pause where, because on the other side, you said, uh, Reese, you know, be nice. But I, I think we also don't want to be doormats where we just accept anything and don't ever speak up for ourselves and don't ever have convictions. And I think the difference between those two or how we walk that line is what I would call emotional neutrality, where I can say you're wrong and it doesn't affect my relationship with you. I, I'm not emotionally uh, negative towards you. I don't feel anger towards you. I don't feel hatred or disdain or disgust or, uh, you know, I'm not afraid of you. I can still think you're wrong. And so being able to separate those negative emotions from my conviction, I think is a really good place to start, but it takes a lot of introspection. I've often, I've heard it said, and it might, it might've even been on your podcast, the Bible for normal people, um, a, a picture of what community might look like in that. So you have two old dudes in the synagogue, couple of thousand years ago, arguing um, very energetically over some some point and it can get heated and it can go on long. And then, um, but at the end of the day, they walk out arm in arm of the synagogue and they're, they're still in relationship and they're still doing life together and they still have a mutual respect. And I, I often wonder if that, I find that picture helpful for me whenever I'm kind of getting into a bit of um, back and forth over something that may not actually be the point. Like, it's probably preferable to walk out of the synagogue arm in arm than it is to walk out and be thinking in the shower later on about what you should have said, you know? <laughs> but I think, and what what you've said there, Jared, before, I think is actually really helpful in my, you know, like we talked about the whole being truthful or, or honest um, or authentic. So this idea of almost like truthing in love it owns my own emotions and my own fears to do with the thing that I'm aware of. And it means that I'm probably, before I say why I think this, I'm going to actually be truthful to what's going on inside of me, maybe in relationship with that person. And I actually think for a lot of people on the other side of that true thing in love, it's probably a lot easier for them to hear the authentic, what's going on inside that person as to why they disagree or the fears or the insecurities there. Like I feel like being on the other receiving end of that, like like what you said, hey, I'm actually, I'm actually afraid for you. I feel like that's actually quite liberating being on the other side of that as opposed to you're wrong because you actually go, oh, I, they actually love me. They care about me as opposed to <laughs> they're just, you know, like putting a blanket over it and going, no. Yeah, it kind of almost sparks curiosity in the conversation rather than just being like, you think that and I think this. Mm. Right. I always want us to get, again, that because for me, going from what we believe to how we believe it is going from head to heart. It's going to our emotions. And I think that's a much richer and more important conversation for me. It, it allows for intimacy, even in the midst of disagreement, when we can talk about the things that we're afraid of, or, you know what, you, yeah, I believe that because, you know, my dad believed that. And I, 
I, I really like my dad and I care about my dad and I don't think he was wrong. Like it gets relational and it gets emotional and we can, we can see each other as human beings rather than just, you know, opinion machines, which we can so easily do in the world of social media. Like we're this disembodied, uh, you know, Twitter machine. Mm. I feel like so much of this um, control aspect of the speaking the truth in love uh, obviously just relates to our need for some level of certainty or, um, and, and I think in the last, you know, 18 months with a global pandemic and things like that, we've probably begun to realize that there's not as much certainty as we once thought. And, and I feel like so much of this then relates to how we do this in broader community, because I think for us as individuals, what you're saying, I, I feel like it's, it is true to use the, the word we've been, uh, regardless, but I feel like it's a lot easier for us to embrace this as individuals as sometimes it is as wider communities. Because when we're a community, there's an element of, well, we want to have a, a fixed goal or we want to have that fixed statement of beliefs. Or, so I guess I, I, I'm just wrestling through how, the, the, on an individual level, I think we can embrace, I think we can embrace this as a community, but how do we go about embracing that as as communities, is it doing it on the individual level and inviting others into a maybe a new way of embracing truthing and love? Yeah, I think it is a. I used to go to lunch with my pastor quite a bit after I was a pastor and just a Sunday school teacher, and just I mostly did it so I could could poke fun at him and say, <laughs> "Man, I'm so glad I'm not you." <laughs> like, it's so hard to do this at a congregational level. Um, because what what I the way I would frame that question, or at least it's the question for me, is how do you have inclusion and identity? Yeah, yeah. How do we have a definable identity of who we are without excluding people? Those are almost oxymoronic. Yeah, you, yeah. If you have an identity, you're necessarily not something else, and so you're going to exclude. And so, I think for me, I've I've seen people, pastors and other leaders have such a charitable and hospitable identity where it's, this is who we are because we need some sort of identity. And yet we, we are not at all at odds or combative or against any other expression of faith because we're all on the same team in terms of loving well. Like there, I don't know of any denomination that's against loving your neighbor as yourself. We, we happen to do it in this particular way. This is how, you know, we do it for people who are drawn toward this particular expression. But you know what? We have partners all around the city with all these various expressions and we celebrate them and we're excited. We get together with them on occasion. And uh, I just think of um, when I was a pastor, we had this, uh, we had a, a gay couple that started coming to the church. They wanted to be baptized. This was uh, 15 years ago or something. And uh, we, we said, okay, they can they can be baptized, but then when they wanted to be members, we wouldn't let them be members, which blew my mind. I was like, okay, so I guess they're good enough for God's family, but not the church. I, I don't understand. Um, but it was interesting to me because we had someone on staff in one of these meetings where we were going around and they said, well, there's a, there's a affirming church right down the road. Why don't we just have a partnership with them and say, uh, Hey, listen, we're not at a place where we think it's a faithful expression to have LGBT Christians, but you know what? We have some brothers and sisters right down the road. You know, we'd be happy to introduce you. Like, why don't we form a partnership with them? And everyone in the room looked at him like he had three heads. Like, why would we ever do that? 
And for me, it seemed like such a sensible idea of like, absolutely. Like why? Sure. We're not there, but I mean, I was in a different place than the rest of the staff too, but that kind of idea of we don't have to take ourselves so seriously because what truly identifies us isn't the shape of our commitment to Jesus. It is the commitment to Jesus. And so we can be, we can hold loosely that shape and partner with other shapes because at the core, we have the same desire and goal. Well, that was quite a chat. I feel like my uh, mm. my mind uh, is spinning in a million different ways. I don't places. know what's true anymore, Rhys. <laughs> I don't know what's wise or true or loving. Maybe I should, uh, I feel like there's going to be some uh, some personal work needed after that one. <laughs> but I mean, I, I probably would be better off from doing, from doing that personal work. <laughs> if you too would like to do some personal work or you've been listening to our chat and you want to kind of dive a little bit deeper, you should investigate buying this book. It's called Love Matters More. And if you just put in Love Matters More, Jared Bias, into your search engine of choice, I'm sure it will pop up. You'll have multiple ways to buy that. And if you're interested in listening to uh, the podcast, The Bible for Normal People, pop that into your podcast platform of choice and it will appear before your very eyes. It's been a great conversation today, Reese. What a time. Hey, if you're uh, interested in reaching out to us, as we always say, just email us at podcast at riverviewchurch.com.au. Uh, if you want to find out anything about the community of faith that we belong to, jump onto riverviewchurch.com and you can see it all there. We have socials. We've got all the candies. Uh, so you can find them in the places but, that you find. But no TikTok. No TikTok. Maybe one day. Did we have it for like 10 minutes? And then maybe, maybe they thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, until next time, friends, keep having conversations. <laughs>